0: This is Delicious Revolution, a show about food.
1: I believe gardens are a space where people can reimagine what the city is and should be. So, the built environment, the city is not just a container, it's not just uh, the playground on which we play out our lives. We have an active role in shaping what the city looks like and what our relationship is to that land. And through creating gardens, maintaining gardens, even fighting for the space to have a garden or to continue that garden, we're contributing to uh, what Lefebvre and many theorists today call the right to the city or what i consider the right to imagine and enact the kind of relationships to land and space we wanna see in our homes, our broader homes.
0: Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place made by Chelsea Wills and me, Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of the food movement, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists, and who have a vision for a different food system. This first season of Delicious Revolution, we talk to friends who are deeply engaged with many aspects of food and who have inspired us over years with their thoughts and stories. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can find us at DeliciousRevolutionShow.com.
2: Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. This is Chelsea Wills, here today with Michelle Gloa at her home in Santa Cruz, California. Michelle Goa is an assistant professor in anthropology and social change at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Her research interests include critical political ecology urban social movements, and agri-food studies. Her work uses interdisciplinary frameworks to explore dynamics between activists engaged in changing the landscapes of cities and food systems and the contemporary institutions with which they interact. Michelle approaches her research with over a decade of experience working with food justice and urban agriculture organizing in the United States and Mexico. Specifically, she focuses on the dynamics of land access and property rights, shifting land use and development in food justice organizing. Michelle received her B.S. in natural resource management and political science from Colorado State University and her Ph.D. in environmental studies from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Michelle and I met while working together in a research cluster focusing on critical sustainabilities, looking at the real and imagined past, present, and future of what sustainability is in California. I want to begin today by recognizing and remembering activist and urban garden champion Grace Lee Boggs, who just died at 100 years old in her house in Detroit. When I started thinking about our chat today, I kept thinking about her and the way her words feed into the conversation we are about to have. She said, The time has come for us to reimagine everything. We have to reimagine work, and go away from labor. We have to reimagine revolution and get beyond protest. We have to think not only about change in our institutions, but changes in ourselves. So welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. So let's start by talking about urban agriculture. What is it? Who does it? And
1: why do people do it? Sure. Um, And before we do that, thank you for starting off with Grace Lee Boggs. And I just want to recognize what an important influence she has been in my thinking in my life and I did work with urban gardeners in Michigan uh, outside of Ann Arbor and connected with lots of the urban agriculture community in Detroit at that time and um, just her Grace Lee Box's presence as a decades and decades long leader in creating positive social change across the country could really be felt in the gardens in that city. So urban agriculture, what is it? Who does it? That's a a big question, (laughs) a big answer, Um, and and multiple answers. Um, But one simple definition of urban agriculture is the growing and distribution of food or agricultural products in the city or around the city in the peri-urban areas. And urban gardening and the production of food has happened in different communities, by different populations, different groups of folks Um, in the United States uh, since, well, agriculture was happening here pre-colonization, right, in many ways. Post-colonization and in, in, in the industrial cities, urban agriculture has had a major presence in the U.S. since the 1890s. And there's been at least seven major waves of urban gardening that have occurred with lots of municipal and federal government support for that gardening. So, for example, um, in World War II with the Victory Gardens, which is probably an example many people have heard of, there was over $4.5 billion of investment into gardening across the country from federal and municipal governments. But simply, urban agriculture is producing food in the city. It might be having a pot with your tomatoes out back on your balcony. It might be a 14-acre farm in downtown Los Angeles that uh, includes 350 families growing food for their subsistence. Well, that's a really good place to start because um, it looks so
2: many different ways, right? And it, it sounds like, to me, when looking over your work, a lot of what it's about is Um, these negotiations of what that impact has been on cities over time and um, what people imagine from those spaces, I guess. So could you talk a little bit about what you think those impacts are or give a few examples of different ways that's looked?
1: Mm -hmm. Urban agriculture really appeals to me on a deep level in a way that I've maintained a connection with gardens and gardening movements for over 15 years now. Uh, because of its its many meanings, and I can walk into a garden and feel a sense of calm. See, so feel a sense of a different temporality, a different um, way to understand my relationship to time and space. And that personal connection keeps me coming back. But I also have a, another connection where I believe gardens are a space where people can reimagine what the city is and should be and what their connection to uh, the broader urban landscape may be. So the built environment, the city is not just a container. It's not just uh, the playground on which we play out our lives. We have an active role in shaping what the city looks like and what our relationship is to that land. And through creating gardens, maintaining gardens, even fighting for the space to have a garden or to continue that garden, we're contributing to uh, what Lefebvre and many theorists today call um, the right to the city, or what I consider is people contributing it to the right to the city to the right to imagine and enact the kind of relationships to land and space we want to see in our homes, our broader homes. And so how is that different from something like a city park? Sure. I think that the, um, you know, some gardeners do really work with city parks and, um, want to have that space. And I can talk about an an example of that in a minute, Um, but the gardeners engage multiple strategies for accessing land. So working with municipal parks and recs department might be one. Through looking at sort of the, the whole scope of strategies that gardeners are using, you can see, though, that it's much more about community groups, collectives, in the case of my research. Um, and I don't mean organized collectives, but I mean groups of individuals committed to working together. Um, using uh, the tools at their disposal to to um, to create gardens to reshape uh, the built environment towards a more sustainable towards a more just uh, future many years now about six years I believe um, telling the parks department that community groups near the parks, uh, would like to and should be able to use part of the park land to grow food, to uh, support what the group feels is community self-determination or social determination of the space. So they're wanting to reclaim public land to use it for the neighborhood good. And and parks are there for the community good, right? And provide space for recreation, space for connecting with nature, and what they've seen is that there's been an underinvestment from the city in that public land, and the parks are not being taken care of the way they should be. And and i talked to task force members who both see that as a problem and would like to see the city reinvesting, but would also like community members and neighbors to be able to use that public land for their own good. And so that's one example Um Folks that are also on the task force have talked about how it's not just public land, though. It's not just the parks. If there's private land, vacant land that's been left, um, left vacant and maybe fenced up, or maybe it's just left open and there's trash collecting on the property or um, other uses that the neighborhood doesn't see as conducive to what the sociality uh, that they want to cultivate is, then uh, these folks that I've talked to have said that it's, it's not just an opportunity, it's their responsibility to take back that space and turn it into a garden, turn it into a place where positive community interactions can happen. And I see that as part of Right to the City because people are looking at the urban landscape not just in the dichotomy of public or private land and saying, well, we can work with the city to gain access to public land or work with landlords to gain access to private land, but are saying the city is a landscape that we have an interest in and we have a responsibility in creating our communities. I think that's an example. I think that brings up... uh some ideas
2: about, like, negotiating what ownership means, right? So let's, maybe let's talk about, let's talk about the tract in that context, and uh, maybe you can explain what that is and how the ownership has been
1: negotiated
2: with that space.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, to start off, I think of property as a social institution, as something that's not uh, a defined object, it's, it's a social relationship. And so, gardeners, um, among many other people, every, all of us really, <laughs> are enacting property. We are creating property relations in our everyday actions. And uh, so, the Giltrack Farm is a farm north of Berkeley in Albany that's owned by the University of California. And it's been agricultural land for the last 130 years, I believe. And the university has slowly been developing different pieces of it. And now would like to, on the remaining um, 10 acres, use part of that land to lease it for commercial development, to put in a grocery store, to put in some other developments over time. And that plan started to be developed in the mid-1990s, and since that time, folks have been organizing to say, no, this is prime agricultural land in the East Bay, and we want to see that land go towards urban gardening, education, and research. It was previously research land used for biological control, and... um, so folks want to see that tradition of supporting alternative agriculture continue, but with a focus on the urban. Urban gardening is, is blowing up, right? It's popular all across the country. Michelle Obama has a, a garden at the White House now. It's, there's funding for all kinds of programs. People know about school gardens so Berkeley is uniquely situated that they could develop a research center or community engagement education and research center on urban food production, urban food consumption, um, alternative practices for sustainable gardening and farming on that site. And so people have been advocating that for that on the Gale Track plan. Just to clarify, so
2: that's... That land is a part of University of California Berkeley. Yes, and it has been used over time by a variety of different groups, including researchers, and now it's currently being run by a community group in conjunction with the university. Is that right?
1: Yes. So um, I might a, a few years ago now, the when the university started to move forward with plans for development. A group came to the land of students, community members, and uh, interested folks and said, no, we don't want develop. we're going to occupy the farm. We, and they occupied the, the gill track for a few weeks and has, have since then have said, had several reoccupations of the land to say, no, we don't want it developed. As part of this process of people getting more engaged with the space physically being on the land, Uh, the university negotiated with students to, on part of the undeveloped space uh, that's in question, develop a community garden. And so now there's a couple acre community garden on part of the land that's being run by students, as well as a uh, community council that produces food, gets different groups involved with youth in the community and others. So let's take a step back and
2: talk about that from another direction maybe, which is it seems like urban agriculture is obviously a very big thing, right? <laughs> and within that, this idea of gardens is only one subset, and uh, gardens exist in people's backyards, they exist in public parks, they exist in um, contested pieces of land that where ownership is being negotiated, and then they also exist, it seems like in this case, um, on private pieces of land that are maybe, I don't know, in some stage of negotiation about who has the right to them. I'm not sure how mm-hmm. to say that as articulately as, as as you can explain that. But in this case, what what is the role of a university to facilitate or stop something like this happening? And what does that mean for... Mm -hmm. education and how people are thinking about
1: Mm -hmm. these things. When I've spoken to people who are involved in Occupy the Farm and the student coalition that's involved with running the new Gill Track Community Garden, they really emphasize that this is public land. It's owned by the university, but it's the University of California, which is our largest public university I'm not sure if it's the largest. It's one of our major public university system in California. And and the mission, um, UC Berkeley was a land grant institution. And so it was developed with the purpose of helping people learn skills, at least in part, for farming, for connecting with um, agricultural work. Now UC Berkeley does for the most part, very different kinds of education. But these groups are still saying that the public education mission of the university needs to be upheld, that this land shouldn't be used for commercial development. It should be used for community benefit and education purposes. Um, And so I see that as a negotiation of the meaning of public property. These gardeners are really advocating for certain uses and valuing the use um, for education, for food production, for community engagement. And the university is is struggling with, are they going to use this for the commercial value, for bringing in funding to the university? Or are they going to use it for what it's been used previously, research and education? Michelle, let's talk about the Beach Flats Garden
2: here in Santa Cruz that you've been involved with. Can you explain the situation at
1: hand? I don't, I don't totally understand it. Yeah, the, the Beach Flats Community Garden is a half-acre garden located in the densest neighborhood in Santa Cruz, which happens to be down by the boardwalk. So it's um, also in the neighborhood that receives the most traffic and tourism during the summer. And... The garden has been in existence since the early 90s, since 92. People started cleaning up a vacant lot. And the stories that I've been told are that on that lot, people used to dump trash. People would dump cars and burn them. Um, It was an area that was both an eyesore and a dangerous place for kids in the neighborhood to play or people to... Um, go out into. And so neighbors came together and cleaned up the lot and worked with children and developed a program for children in the neighborhood to start gardening there. So since 94, there have been youth and neighbors of beach flats gardening in this space. And I should note that beach flats since the 1980s has been uh, a location in Santa Cruz where many first Uh, generation immigrants are moving. And so this is a lot of Mexican, Salvadorian families that are moving into the neighborhood. And so the garden is a real place of continuing the agroecological traditions and knowledges of those families. For example, one of the gardeners, Don Emilio, is from Durango, and he says that he didn't go to school as a kid. His school was the field. And his dad told him, what do you need school for? You learn to grow your food. And so he learned all of the ways to grow the milpa and different, um, different plants, but really focusing on the milpa, so corn and beans for their family. And he brought that tradition with him. And he's doing that in the Beach Flats Garden, teaching other people to grow with the knowledge that he has. So now the Beach Flats Garden is under threat. Yes. So the land that the garden is on is Seaside, Santa Cruz Seaside Company Land, which is the company that owns the boardwalk here in Santa Cruz, as well as various other businesses and properties in town. And they developed an agreement with the gardeners at the beginning for a year-to-year lease. And the city has been managing that relationship since 1994. So it was a a public community garden uh, for the last 21 years. Um, but on a year-to-year basis, because it's owned privately by this company. They have requested the land back or said that they want the land back for their own agricultural and landscaping needs and uh, have given an eviction date for the gardeners of November 13th. So let's talk a little bit more about the neighborhood.
2: Um, are there other public spaces in the neighborhood? Where do people hang out? Mm-hmm. What what are what are ways the garden has been used over these
1: twenty five years that it's existed? Mm-hmm. The neighborhood, so like I said, it's a very dense neighborhood. Between there's there's two census block groups, so within about uh, a square mile or a little bit less, there's over twenty five hundred people, which for Santa Cruz is very dense and. Um, Within this, the beach flats itself, it, it it's um, there's and and the beach hill area. There's only one park, and it's a quarter acre park. Santa Cruz has a goal for itself in its parks master plan of having two acres of park space, open space for community members for every thousand people. So you can see this neighborhood, twenty five hundred people, quarter acre of park space. And the garden, 0.5 acres of green space and access. What has happened in the garden, and who runs it, and what does that look like? So the garden is um, both similar to other community gardens in Santa Cruz in some ways. It has about the same size plots as Trescany Community Garden, which is on the west side of Santa Cruz in one of the wealthier neighborhoods. And it's very different. Because the gardeners themselves have a different way of organizing and managing the land. So Parks and Recreation is the technical manager of the space. I have to say there's very little engagement from Parks and Rec in the space. Um, There's some signs up. I think they have dealt with funding issues. So it's really the gardeners that are managing it. And there's several elders that are in their 70s and 80s now that use the garden as their home, really. They come to the garden all day. They're there. They clean up the streets around the neighborhood. They help maintain the plots for the other gardeners if they aren't able to come water one day. Um, So they're the leaders, in a sense. Not in that they're directing how the space needs to be used, but that they're providing this great care for a community resource. So describe that group. Of leaders oh. um so like i mentioned don emilio is one of them and he's 73 and he's from durango and he's been here for a couple of decades now worked for many years of his life at a restaurant in town in the kitchen and has recently retired and spends his days at the garden don domingo is another one of the leaders and he's an older gentleman as well from oaxaca and um You know, it's it's really the, it's this group of, of men that lived in the beach flats in the 80s, and they saw that they wanted to improve their community, and they wanted a space to be able to work the land, and they came together to be able to do that, and they're still there 25 years later. They have a real relationship to this place. And there's many other gardeners who have gotten involved and who use the space as well, uh... When
2: I visited that garden, I've talked to both Don Emilio and Domingo, and um, they they told me, we have this garden to grow food, but we also have this garden because people do drugs in other places in the neighborhood, or there's trouble other places in the neighborhood, and we keep this place clean and safe so there's a place to go. Can, can you talk about the role of that garden there of this de facto park or this de facto
1: safe space. Mm-hmm. The city has has talked about this history of the beach flats, and the beach flats still does have a reputation in Santa Cruz. People think of it as potentially a more dangerous area. And that's no longer really statistically that true. In the, 90s, the early 90s and late 80s, there were um, higher rates of crime. There were a lot of issues with both the problems that tourism brings into a community and just a lack of investment from the city in helping with the problems that were developing in the beach flats. And uh, the garden is one response coming out of the community, coming out of self-organization of people living in that situation to address these problems, to create a space where people... Um, can connect in healthier and safer ways and and really enjoy being next to corn plants growing feel the relaxation of that space Um, I think before we Mm -hmm. we
2: we took a little break because we had a visitor from a cat and we were talking about um, this idea of conservation versus participation I guess in these Mm -hmm. public spaces and how Tracing these traditions of access to land and usages of land, um, I guess across class lines, really. And for me, the Beach Flats Garden feels like this really clear example of um, another way public space could feel. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't feel standard in almost any way. It, the many of the solutions that. The fence is a great example at the Beach Flats Garden. It's made of all of these, all of these different fences that are kind of cobbled together with wire and old paddocks and um, these other things. But it's made, it's this uh, kind of, the, you know, this like architecture of invention, or mm-hmm. of imagination, because the fences are made to be used as trellises and to. Make sure that cars don't run into the corn, and uh, you know are, are used in all of these different ways, as opposed to and um, thinking about the garden installation in front of the Conservatory of Flowers, mm-hmm. which um, is in Golden Gate Park and is and is really made to be seen but not touched.
1: But mm-hmm. um, well, let's
2: just talk about public yeah. space, and well, let's talk about Mexico City and how you came to start thinking
1: about. Urban agricultural
2: mm-hmm. that
1: way in a contested city. and One thing that that question makes me think of is how the beach flats gardeners are really thinking of this land as public because they want people to come in. They are happy when tourists come in or when people from other parts of Santa Cruz are there and enjoying the space with them. There's been lots of UC Santa Cruz students that come in and learn from the gardeners. And the way they think of the public land um, and parkland is through a really active engagement with it, is through working the space and creating with the seeds, with the water, the nature that's in that space. So it's not a place that you come to to passively observe and uh, just enjoy the pastoral landscape or enjoy the trees that have been curated to create a certain sensation. Um, It's a place where they encourage people to come and pick and harvest and taste and plant with them if they want to. And Uh, In talking about the histories of gardening, uh, I think that urban agriculture really has come out of many uh, racial and ethnic groups that have been marginalized in different ways, as well as uh, working class communities and, and within these groups that have histories of planting for survival. So they're connecting with the earth and with space in a way that's growing their own food um, to either supplement or, in some cases, to really provide a, a good chunk of the amount of food that they're going to need. Um, Thank you. You saved it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in thinking about Mexico City, what, one thing that it makes me think of in that in Mexico City is. Many of the displaced rural populations in Mexico are coming to the city to seek opportunities and are also gardening, again, to provide for substance, to, to provide for their needs. And, and you can think of the Beach Flats Garden in the same way, that this, these are displaced populations from rural Mexico and El Salvador. Many of the gardeners have stories of coming to the United States to try to seek better economic opportunity after the nineteen. 19- 70s and 80s um, when trade with um, Mexico in particular with with, with now I'm going to mess up on what I'm talking about <laughs> alright let's see let's try that um,
2: let's take a break for a second okay. we're back on the air again <laughs> the world's longest interview <laughs> um we were talking about the beach flats. Mm-hmm. We were talking about
1: this contested moment with the beach flats. and Yeah, and one solution that the city is, is trying to come up with is, is moving the garden and offering some alternative space. And there's some, some logistical reasons why that would not work well for the garden. They've been improving the soil for 25 years now and um, really working what is... Beach soil so not very good to the point of being able to produce massive amounts of food and um, be very alive and there's mature fruit trees on the land that you won't be able to move there's there's other trees around the garden that are some of the largest in the neighborhood itself so there's challenges with that um but I also wanted to think about the, the quote that you mentioned from Grace Lee Boggs I'm going to read it again just to jog my memory the time has come for us to reimagine everything we have to reimagine work and go away from labor we have to reimagine revolution and get beyond protest we have to think not only about change in our institutions but change in ourselves so when I heard this quote it made me think last night uh, we had a seminar with our department discussing a reading by John Holloway and in that, he's talking about how people are reimagining revolution towards creating cracks, towards creating cracks in the current capitalist world order or the way that we interact as a society through capitalistic relations. And, um, and one of the examples he uses as something that he's most inspired by is a community-organized botanical garden and, and garden space in Puebla, Mexico. And it makes me think that the garden, the Beach Flats garden is really similar to what's happening in Mexico City where I did work for two years in many ways where displaced people are coming together and thinking about how do they create places in where they live to meet their needs and both their physical needs for food but also their needs for community, for engaging in a space where they aren't just Workers uh, making wages to be able to survive, but they're making things together that support the the deeper needs of the community. Yeah. Um, Great.
2: <laughs> I think we finally got there with that question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about what's some of the pitfalls of of urban gardening have been and are, and uh, we're kind of circling back around to one of the things you ask in this chapter that I read about food justice that you that you just wrote. I'm like, I'm killing it today with the good thing there's editing. Yeah, We'll <laughs> just keep rolling. We'll just edit it all out. Um, okay, so in the chapter you just wrote, you talk about how gardeners enact land politics. That can either reimagine or reinforce contemporary property relations when I read this I thought what are the pitfalls of reimagining property relations and how do how do gardeners and gardens run into those things and also what are the possibilities that are implicit or explicit in those actions of gardening mm. together so let's start with the pitfalls
1: okay I'll talk about an example. Um, of a debate that came up in in San Francisco so property and, and maintaining access to one piece of land for a garden over a long period of time both creates the opportunity for gardeners to imagine their relationship to space and to have a sense of control and, and de- democratic engagement with land um, and also may create a hang-up. So the, um, the Hayes Valley Farm in San Francisco is a, is a pretty well-known case where the, the city made an interim use agreement with gardeners to use a piece of land for 3 to 18 years. And the gardeners that they made this agreement with Um, saw this interim use, this temporary use, as a good model. Um, And when they were asked to leave three years later, they agreed to do so and um, were happy that this space could be used as an example, as an inspiration, as an opportunity to show neighbors what urban land can be used for in terms of cultivating soil, cultivating uh, green space, food, community, etc., Other folks came in after that and uh, occupied the land and said, we don't want the city to sell this land for the development of condos. There's enough condos in San Francisco. There's not enough urban gardens. And uh, so they laid down a firmer line that interim use is not uh, a proper strategy for urban gardeners to be Uh, using in order to gain access to space. We want to create more resistance to development instead of facilitation of that development through gardening. So pitfalls. Um, So I guess I don't see it as a pitfall so much as an opportunity for urban gardeners to really have this conversation about Will gardens be in resistance to the use of urban land for development, for making money, for commercial uses? Will they be creating alternatives where people are inspired to see another way of using your time, like Grace Lee Boggs says, moving away from labor and more towards work that inspires creativity and the meeting of community needs? Will they be... Spaces um, where we create alternatives and create resistance. Um, and, and so, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way that community gardens
2: don't interact with the fabric of the city? As you talk about it, none of these stories are very simple. No. We keep taking breaks as we're recording this because it gets really complicated really fast to talk about what a community garden is, what yeah. happens there, who does it, why they do it, and what the implications of that space are. Mm-hmm. And in the case of something like the Hayes Valley Farm, there's so many implications. hmm just by having a farm there, you look at the development all around it and see it with new eyes. Whether, whether it was occupied or not afterwards, you see the condos coming up around it because there's, there's a there's a hole. There's something there's something different happening in the middle of that, um, and those implications are so strong. Something like the Beach Flats Garden. I think in some ways has very similar implications and in other ways very different implications, right? It, to me, it really highlights the need for what happens with aging migrant populations? Where do they spend time? What, mm-hmm. is, what is a healthy social structure? Where are the places where people are needed? Mm-hmm. Um, whose, ter- whose terms are those things? who makes the terms for how those places are set Mm -hmm. um it feels it feels so complicated to talk about um it feels like there is such implicit possibility in them and the pitfalls are actually part of the possibility Mm -hmm. or or something
1: would you say that's true yes absolutely i think that Maybe the pitfalls are part of the conversation of where urban gardening is going in this country and what we see it as. Um, Another example from San Francisco is that folks now are thinking about portable gardens and being able to work with developers to use a garden or use a piece of land for a short period of time by developing uh, portable beds that then you can pick up and move to the next place. And that really has a different relationship to that land and to the growth politics of a city than does setting down roots in a community for 25 years. So these are, comes back to an important question and a unifying theme across these different stories of the San Francisco Bay Area and Santa Cruz's, I'm including that in that is one of the hottest land markets in the United States and in the world right now. Prices for land are going up quickly, rents are going up quickly, we're in the middle of a housing crisis, and so space is uh, a prized commodity. How gardeners are going to relate to the rush for land, the rush for putting in commercial development into spaces, and at the same time, cities that have had pinched budgets for their parks and recreation departments for their ability to invest in what were the traditional community garden programs that came out of the 1970s um, is is an essential question for gardeners today. Gardens aren't simple spaces. It's not just a place where a kid comes to grow carrots and see their food, although that's very important. They are... Part and parcel of building the urban environment and relating to these questions of development and land use. Well, I think let's end it there. Okay. That sounds great.
2: Thanks okay. so much, Michelle. <laughs> Thank uh, you. How, is there any way that we can follow along with what you're
1: doing or what's next for you? Sure. Uh, to follow the story of the Beach Flats Community Garden, you can go to the website beachflatsgarden.com. And uh, you can follow my work from the California Institute of Integral Studies website, uh, looking up the Department of Anthropology and Social Change. I have a site there where I'll be posting blog updates.
2: Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank, thank so you. My pleasure.
0: Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place produced by Chelsea Wills and me, Devin Sampson. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. You can get in touch with us there, too. If you like Delicious Revolution and you want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening.